A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 30. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 10. Aswan and Elephantine, Part 3. They had been down on the bank for hire all day long. Brown camels and white camels, shaggy camels and smooth camels, all with gay worsted tassels on their heads, and rugs flung over their high wooden saddles by way of housings. The gentlemen of the Fostet had ridden away hours ago, cross-legged and serene, and we had witnessed their demeanor with mingled admiration and envy. Now, modestly conscious of our own daring, we prepared to do likewise. It was a solemn moment when, having chosen our beasts, we prepared to encounter the unknown perils of the desert. What wonder if the happy couple exchanged an affecting farewell at parting? We mounted and rode away, two imps of darkness following at the heels of our camels, and Salome performing the part of bodyguard. Thus attended, we found ourselves pitched, swung, and rolled along at a pace that carried us rapidly up the slope, past a suburb full of cafés and grinning dancing-girls, and out into the desert. Our way for the first half-mile or so lay among tombs. A great Mohammedan necropolis, part ancient, part modern, lies behind Aswan, and covers more ground than the town itself. Some scores of tiny mosques, each topped by its little cupola, and all more or less dilapidated, stand here amid a wilderness of scattered tombstones. Some are isolated, some grouped picturesquely together. Each covers, or is supposed to cover, the grave of a Muslim santon, but some are mere commemorative chapels dedicated to saints and martyrs elsewhere buried. Of simple headstones defaced, shattered, overturned, propped back to back on carns of loose stones, or piled in broken and dishonored heaps, there must be many hundreds. They are, for the most part, rounded at the top like ancient Egyptian stela, and bear elaborately carved inscriptions, some of which are in the Kufic character, and more than a thousand years old. Seen when the sun is bending westward and the shadows are lengthening, there is something curiously melancholy and picturesque about this city of the dead in the dead desert. Leaving the tombs, we now strike off towards the left, bound for the obelisk in the quarry, which is the stock side of the place. The horizon beyond Aswan is bounded on all sides by rocky heights, bold and picturesque in form, yet scarcely lofty enough to deserve the name of mountains. The sandy bottom under our camel's feet is strewn with small pebbles, and tolerably firm. Clustered rocks of black and red granite profusely inscribed with hieroglyphed records crop up here and there, and serve as landmarks just where landmarks are needed for nothing would be easier than to miss one's way among these tawny slopes, and to go wandering off like lost Israelites into the desert. Winding in and out among undulating hillocks and tracks of rolled boulders, we come at last to a little group of cliffs at the foot of which our camels halt unbidden. Here we dismount, climb a short slope, and find the huge monolith at our feet. Being cut horizontally, it lies half buried in drifted sand, with nothing to show that it is not wholly disengaged and ready for transport. Our books tell us, however, that the undercutting has never been done, and that it is yet one with the granite bottom on which it seems to lie. Both ends are hidden, but one can pay some sixty feet of its yet visible surface. 
That surface bears the tool marks of the workman. A slanting groove pitted with wedge holes indicates where it was intended to taper towards the top. Another shows where it was to be reduced at the side. Had it been finished, this would have been the largest obelisk in the world. The great obelisk of Queen Hatshepsut at Karnak, which, as its inscriptions record, came also from Aswan, stands ninety-two feet high, and measures eight feet square at the base. But this which lies sleeping in the desert would have stood ninety-five feet in the shaft, and have measured over eleven feet square at the base. We can never know why it was left here, nor guess with what royal name it should have been inscribed. Had the king said in his heart that he would set up a mightier obelisk than was ever yet seen by eyes of men, and did he die before the block could be extracted from the quarry? Or were the quarrymen driven from the desert and the pharaoh from his throne by the hungry hordes of Ethiopia, or Syria, or the islands beyond the sea? The great stone may be older than Ramesses the Great, or as modern as the last of the Romans, but to give it a date, or to divine its history, is impossible. Egyptology, which has solved the enigma of the Sphinx, is powerless here. The obelisk of the quarry holds its secret safe, and holds it forever. Ancient Egyptian quarrying is seen under its most striking aspect among extensive limestone or sandstone ranges, as at Tura and Silsilis, but the process by which the stone was extracted can nowhere be more distinctly traced than at Aswan. In some respects, indeed, the quarries here, though on a smaller scale than those lower down the river, are even more interesting. Nothing surprises one at Silsilis, for instance, more than the economy with which the sandstone has been cut from the heart of the mountain. But at Aswan, as the material was more precious, so does the economy seem to have been still greater. At Silsilis the yellow cliffs have been sliced as neatly as the cheeses in a cheesemonger's window. Smooth, upright walls alone mark the place where the work has been done, and the amount of debris is altogether insignificant. But at Aswan, when extracting granite for sculptural purposes, they attacked the form of the object required, and cut it out roughly to shape. The great obelisk is but one of the many cases in point. In the same group of rocks, or one very closely adjoining, we saw a rough-hewn column erect and three parts detached, as well as the semi-cylindrical hollow from which its fellow had been taken. One curious recess from which a quadrant-shaped mass had been cut away puzzled us immensely. In other places the blocks appeared to have been coffer-shaped. We sought in vain, however, for the broken sarcophagus mentioned in Murray. But the drifted sands, we may be sure, hide more precious things than these. The inscriptions are probably as abundant here as in the Bracia of Hemamant. The great obelisk must have had a fellow, if we only knew where to look for it. The obelisks of Queen Hatshepsut and the sarcophagi of many famous kings might possibly be traced to their beds in these quarries. So might the casing-stones of the Pyramid of Menkara, the massive slabs of the Temple of the Sphinx, and the walls of the sanctuary of Philip Aradius at Karnak. Above all, the Sinite Colossus of the Ramesseum and the monster Colossus of Tanis, which was the largest detached statue in the world, must each have left its mighty matrix among the rocks close by. But these, like the Song of the Sirens or the Alias of Achilles, though not beyond all conjecture, are among the things that will never now be discovered. As regards the process of quarrying at Aswan, 
it seems that rectangular granite blocks were split off here, as the softer limestone and sandstone elsewhere, by means of wooden wedges. These were fitted to holes already cut for their reception, and being saturated with water, split the hard rock by mere force of expansion. Every quarried mass hereabouts is marked with rows of these wedge holes. Passing by a tiny oasis where there were camels, and a well, and an idle water-wheel, and a patch of emerald-green barley, we next rode back nearly to the outskirts of Aswan, where, in a dismal hollow on the verge of the desert, may be seen a small, half-buried temple of Ptolemaic times. Traces of color are still visible on the winged globe under the cornice, and on some mutilated bas-reliefs at either side of the principal entrance. Seeing that the interior was choked with rubbish, we made no attempt to go inside, but rode away again without dismounting. And now, there being still an hour of daylight, we signaled our intention of making for the top of the nearest hill, in order to see the sunset. This clearly was an unheard-of innovation. The camel-boys stared, shook their heads, protested there was mafishsika, no road, and evidently regarded us as lunatics. The camels planted their splay feet obstinately in the sand, tried to turn back, and when obliged to yield to the force of circumstances, abused us all the way. Arrived at the top, we found ourselves looking down upon the island of Elephantine, with the Nile, the town, and the Dahabias at our feet. A prolongation of the ridge on which we were now standing led, however, to another height crowned by a ruined tomb, and seemed to promise a view of the cataract. Seeing us prepare to go on, the camel-boys broke into a furor of remonstrance, which, but for Salome's big stick, would have ended in downright mutiny. Still we pushed forward, and still dissatisfied, insisted on attacking a third summit. The boys now trudged on in sullen despair. The sun was sinking, the way was steep and difficult, and the night would soon come on. If the Hawaji chose to break their necks, it concerned nobody but themselves, but if the camels broke theirs, who was to pay for them? Such, expressed in half-broken Arabic, half in gestures, were the sentiments of our youthful Nubians. Nor were the camels themselves less emphatic. They grinned, they sniffed, they snorted, they snarled, they disputed every foot of the way. As for mine, a gawky, supercilious beast with a bloodshot eye and a battered Roman nose, I never heard any dumb animal make use of such bad language in my life. The last hill was very steep and stony, but the view from the top was magnificent. We had now gained the highest point of the ridge which divides the valley of the Nile from the Arabian desert. The cataract, widening away reach after reach, and studded with innumerable rocky islets, looked more like a lake than a river. Of the Libyan desert we could see nothing beyond the opposite sand slopes, gold-rimmed against the sunset. The Arabian desert, a boundless waste edged by a serrated line of purple peaks, extended eastward to the remotest horizon. We looked down upon it as on a raised map. The Muslim tombs, some five hundred feet below, showed like toys. To the right, in a wide valley opening away southwards, we recognized that ancient bed of the Nile which serves for the great highway between Egypt and Nubia. At the end of the vista, some very distant palms against a rocky background pointed the way to Philae. Meanwhile the sun was fast sinking, the lights were crimsoning, the shadows were lengthening. All was silent, all was solitary.
We listened, but could scarcely hear the murmur of the rapids. We looked in vain for the quarry of the obelisk. It was but one group of rocks among scores of others, and to distinguish it at this distance was impossible. Presently a group of three or four black figures mounted on little gray asses came winding in and out among the tombs, and took the road to Philae. To us they were moving specks, but our lynx-eyed camel-boys at once recognized the Sheikh el Shela, Sheikh of the Cataract, and his retinue. More Dahabiyas had come in, and the worthy man, having spent all day in Aswan, visiting, palavering, bargaining, was now going home to Mahatta for the night. We watched the retreating riders for some minutes, till twilight stole up the ancient channel like a flood, and drowned them in warm shadows. The afterglow had faded off the heights when we at length crossed the last ridge, descended the last hillside, and regained the level from which we had started. Here once more we met the Fostet party. They had ridden to Philae and back by the desert, and were apparently all the worse for wear. Seeing us, they urged their camels to a trot, and tried to look as if they liked it. The idle man and the rider wreathed their countenances in ghastly smiles, and did likewise. Not for worlds would they have admitted that they found the pace difficult. Such is the moral influence of the camel. He acts as a tonic, he promotes the Spartan virtues, and if not himself heroic, is at least the cause of heroism in others. It was nearly dark when we reached Aswan. The cafés were all alight and astir. There were smoking and coffee-drinking going on outside. There were sounds of music and laughter within. A large, private house on the opposite side of the road was being decorated, as if for some festive occasion. Flags were flying from the roof, and two men were busy, putting up a gaily painted inscription over the doorway. Asking, as was natural, if there was a marriage or a fantasia afoot, it was not a little startling to be told that these were signs of mourning, and that the master of the house had died during the interval that elapsed between our riding out and riding back again. In Egypt, where the worship of ancestry and the preservation of the body were once among the most sacred duties of the living, they now make short work with their dead. He was to be buried, they said, to-morrow morning, three hours after sunrise. End of section 30